Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I am going to be the new site pastor here for the Bell Campus at Village. And so uh, just before we get into the Word of God, uh, let me take a moment or two to introduce myself to you. Uh, because I'm going to be around here lots and uh, looking forward to connecting with uh, a lot of you. Uh, I am married, my wife uh, Nula and I. We have uh, three kids, a uh, daughter 14, a son 10, and another daughter 8. I'm originally from Calgary, uh, which means two things about me. It means, first of all, that apparently I have a bit of an accent. Uh, I can't hear it, but uh, apparently I do. Uh, so uh, I'm not from Texas. Brandon is from Texas. I'm from Calgary. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing you need to know is because I'm from Calgary, I've come to love the greatest music ever, which we all know is country music. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, that's uh, one of the things that I love. I, uh, I, before I came out here to Vancouver, I worked as a teacher for a little while. I worked as a salesperson and a banker and a production manager. But then I felt God calling me into ministry. And so I left Calgary. I came out here to Vancouver to study at Regent College. And after a number of years there, I took a job uh, at a local church in Burnaby and loved it. I just loved the opportunity to serve God, to interact with people, and, and, uh, and to, to be growing together and following Christ. And so uh, when uh, this, uh, this uh, January, when uh, Pastor Mark and the elders of Village invited me to come join what God is doing here, I was really excited. And so we're glad to be here. Uh, some people asked me, I, I was introduced last week, they said, so what, is it, what does a site pastor do? Well, my role really is to connect with you in this uh, big church to help you get connected in, to make this feel like family and home, to pray with you and uh, to care for you and to help you find opportunities to just be part of the life of the church here. And last week after I was introduced, a number of people came to me in the, in the lobby and so gently, but with a little fear in the back of their eyes, they said, well, if you're here, then where's, where's Mark going? Uh, and the answer is Mark is going nowhere. Uh, he's going to continue to be our uh, senior lead pastor. He's going to do the vast majority of the teaching and the preaching and the vision. And I'm just coming alongside here at the Bell Campus to help uh, people connect and get involved here. So that's a little bit about me. But let's turn uh, to the, the, the Word of God this morning. Uh, we're going to start, uh, uh, pick it up actually again in Matthew chapter 18 beginning in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there. Uh, now one of the things you need to know about me is I, I grew up in the 80s. And in the 80s, country music actually wasn't very good. Uh, so I listened to a lot of rock music in the 80s. And I, I secretly kind of thought it would be cool to be a rock star. I mean, you know, that was a cool thing. Uh, these guys, they flew around in helicopters. They hung out in green rooms, whatever a green room was. Uh, they could demand that there was no red M&Ms in the bowl of M&Ms in their, in their green room. Then they came out and played to a stadium full of uh, screaming fans. And, and then when that was done, then they drove home in a limousine. It sounded like a pretty good deal. Uh, and a bit of a dream. But the problem, I had several problems with that. One of them is I can't sing. Uh, so that's a, that's a bit of a problem. Although I've known rockers who seem to be doing okay without that skill. Uh, another one is I tried to learn to play guitar. I, I know the chords. I can, play, uh, I can play the chords. I can't keep time. So it's a problem if you're trying to play in a band. And, and the third problem is, you know, I'm just not really the rebel type. You know, back then you had to have hair down in the middle of your back and wear crazy clothes. And I'm mostly a button-down, kind of clean-cut guy. So it didn't really work for me. But this desire, there was this desire there to be great. This allure of, you know, people want to look and say, you know, that guy, he's good at that. He's, he's, you know, he's someone we want to be around. 
And I think that that desire for greatness is actually something that, that all of us have. Not that we all want to be 80s rockers by any stretch. But, but there is a desire in us to be great at something, isn't there? I mean, we want to be great in our career, or we want to be great as a mother or a father, or we want to be great in sports, or we want to be great in music, or we want to be great in something in our world that says, you know, this is what I'm good at. This is something that I'm really successful at. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, the desire to be great, there's a lot of good things to that, right? It motivates us. It gives us a goal to work towards. It gives us, uh, you know, it inspires us. And those are good things. And yet that same desire for greatness also cuts the other way, doesn't it? I mean, there's a lot of pressure in our world when we try to be great at something. And and sometimes, you know, there's insecurity because we see that others seem to be doing better at something that we want to be great at. And sometimes there's jealousy. And and we find out that being great at something isn't as easy as we thought it would be. And, And we try for it. And when we find out that it's much more difficult than we thought, I mean, one of two things happens, right? I mean, sometimes we just give up. We just say, I don't care. I'm not going to try anymore. And other times we double down and we work even harder because we are going to make it. We're going to show that we can be great. But there's a lot of of problems with that. I mean, even when we become great at whatever it is, that doesn't last long. There's... You know, we we arrive at a certain level, we realize, oh, somebody else is already ahead of us. Or we look behind us and there's a young person who's coming up and they're just making it look so easy. You know, the beauty of being my age is I know what happened to all those guys who were 80s rockers. I mean, for the 10, 15 years in their 20s and early 30s, they played in the stadiums and it was great. And then someone better came along, someone new. And then they had a choice. I mean, after all that greatness and all that fame, they could either become used car salesmen or they could spend the rest of their life playing the same seven songs every night, night after night, in little bars all across the country. Either way, the greatness didn't last long. You see, when it comes to this whole question of greatness, we, 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 have, we wrestle around it, don't we? I mean, there's some good things about it. There's some real problems about it. And the question is, how do we manage that? And as followers of Jesus, what does he have to say about it? I mean, should we as followers of Jesus want to be great at things in our life? Or is that wrong? Should we not want to be great and successful? How does Jesus think about it? And that's what what Jesus is going to talk about today. In fact, on the way, before this story begins, on the way, they've been traveling up to Capernaum. And the disciples, Jesus' disciples, have been having this conversation among themselves. Who's the greatest among us? And they can't decide. And so finally they say, let's ask Jesus. That's where this story starts. Chapter 18, verse 1, it says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Right? They're saying the same, same tension. Jesus, look at us. There's 12 of us here. Pick one. I mean, who of us is, is the greatest at following you? Now, on one hand, it's kind of an arrogant question, right? Like, hey, pick me. And yet on the other hand, there's there's an honesty to it. Like, Jesus, we have given our life to follow you. We desperately want to do well at it. So help us understand, what is the measure of greatness? I mean, what does it look like to be a good follower of you? Is it like Peter? Because Peter actually seems to think he's doing pretty well. Or is it more like John? Because you know what? John is telling everyone that you're the one, he's the one that you really love. Or is it James? I mean, Jesus... 
Help us know. So we at least know what to shoot for. And you can see even in this, there is this, this tension between them. They want to be great at following Jesus. They've given their life to it. And yet there's already this kind of insecurity and this jealousy developing among them. And we often ask the same question ourselves, don't we? Just quietly to ourselves. Jesus, I've given my life to follow you. I want to serve you. What does it look like to be a great Christian? I mean, Billy Graham, is that the picture? Is that what I should be shooting for if I want to be a great follower of you? Or is it more like Tim Keller, this sort of scholarly, you know, pastoral guy who opens the Bible, teaches so clearly? Or, or Jesus, maybe, maybe the picture of greatness in the kingdom is the guy in my community group who's so passionate about you. He just, he just talks about you and it just flows out of him. Maybe that's what I should try to be. Or Jesus, maybe it's the person who signs up to be a, a missionary in China. Jesus, I want to know. What does it mean to be a great follower of you? Or, or Jesus, is that a bad question? Should I not want to do that? So now Jesus is going to answer this question. Look at how he, he responds when they ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 2 it says, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. They ask Jesus, and, and, and Jesus doesn't answer right away. Instead, he looks around. And he sees some kids playing over there and, and he catches the eye of a little boy, maybe four or five years old. And he kind of, he gets down and says, hey, hey, buddy, buddy, yeah, could you come help me? Uh, you see these men here? I want to teach them a lesson and, and I need you to help me. Could you come? You just, if you just stand here, that'd be so helpful. A little boy comes and stands there and now Jesus is going to teach them all about greatness. But notice what Jesus doesn't do. When they ask who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he didn't say, that's a ridiculous question. How dare you ask such a stupid question? Not at all. You know, that desire for greatness is something that God has built in us. It's a good thing. Our problem is that sin has taken and twisted that so that it comes with all these other negative side effects. So Jesus says, I'm going to teach you about greatness. It's a good thing to pursue but as an example of what it looks like, I'm not going to choose Peter and I'm not going to choose James or John. I'm not going to choose Billy Graham or Tim Keller or that guy who's so passionate in your community group. I'm going to choose, as a picture of greatness, a little five-year-old boy just standing here. So now Jesus is going to explain what this greatness is all about. So in verse 3, this is what he says. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus. He says, you want to be great? Okay. But first you have to make sure you're actually in the kingdom. And to do that, you have to turn and become like little children. Now what's Jesus saying here? Well, the famous football coach, Vince Lombardi, uh, led the Green Bay Packers, great NFL football team for many years. Every year, every season, he would gather together his team. And I mean, in the door would come these big professional football players who were at the top of their game. And their picture of greatness, their goal for greatness was to win the Super Bowl, of course. And every year when they'd come into that, in, into that locker room, Vince Lombardi would never start his, his talk with, gentlemen, this year we're going to the Super Bowl. No, instead, he would famously pick up a football. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. 
And the message that he was communicating to them is, look, if you want to be great in your life, if you want to be successful, if you want to win the Super Bowl, it starts with going back to the very fundamentals, the very basics of what this is all about. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, look, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be successful in all these things, you've got to start with the fundamentals. And for him, that means turning and becoming like little children. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, what he's talking about is the worldview that we hold. See, everybody holds some sort of a worldview. It's just a way of us seeing and understanding the world around us, how we understand it, how we under interpret the world. A worldview is what gives us a meaning and purpose, helps us to know what to pursue and what to ignore. And we all develop a worldview as a child. And we bring it with us into our adulthood, into the world into which we live. And Jesus says, look, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be great at following me, you can't just add me to your existing worldview, to the one that you had before you put your trust in me. You actually have to become like a child and relearn how to see the world. Because you have to learn to see it the way that I do, the way that Jesus does, to understand it, to find meaning and purpose and, and vision and interpret things through his eyes. You see, too often when people come to faith in Jesus, they say, I, I, I want to follow you, Jesus. But they think of it less as a change of worldview and more as downloading the Jesus app into their life. Right? I mean, they, they download Jesus. They put that app in the corner. They go on with their same worldview that they always have. But then when they need something from Jesus, they open the app. You know, there's a crisis in my world. Or, or I, I, I got this kind of wish. I wish that Jesus would fix this for me or, or whatever it is. And they open that app. They get Jesus in their world. And then they close it up again and they go back to the worldview that they had before. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you cannot do that. It's a recipe for disaster. Instead, you have to change your whole worldview. Jesus has to become the operating system in your life on which all the other apps work and on which they all work through. And those who get that wrong, there's a lot of problems for them. I mean, I talked to a guy a while back who came to me and said, you know, I've been following Jesus for many years, but it doesn't work for me. It just doesn't work. I mean, I, I, I'm bored. The only reason I'm coming to church is because my family makes me come. And the problem, the problem is, is that he never came and, I mean, he brought Jesus into his life, but only as the app. He never take took on Jesus' worldview and totally changed it. He never set out to be great at following Jesus. He said it would be great in his career, great at golf, great at hanging out with his friends, but not seeking true greatness in following Jesus. So of course it was boring. Of course it wasn't working for him. Jesus is saying here, if you want to know greatness in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to start by relearning, by totally thinking differently about this life. You've got to see it the way that Jesus does. That's where Jesus starts. But then having laid the foundation, he says, okay, now I'm going to tell you, this is how to experience true greatness. Look at what he says next in verse 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, you want greatness? Everywhere else in this world, greatness is measured on the gifts that you have, the natural talents, the skills that you have, combined with how hard you work at it. That's how greatness comes but not in the kingdom of heaven. He says, look, this little boy here, five years old, he's a picture of the greatest. Not, not because he has the gifting like Billy Graham. Not because he's, you know, worked hard like Tim Keller. Not because he has the, the passion 
of that guy in your community group. You know what makes this little boy a picture of the greatness, greatest? His humility, his humbleness. Jesus says the key to greatness in the kingdom of heaven is having the humility of a little child. Now, let's talk about humility because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what humility is all about. There's a lot of people think, you know, being humble simply means thinking poorly of myself. Or, or, or being humble means pretending that I'm not good at things that I'm actually quite good at. Or being humble means that I'm a doormat that everyone can walk on. But that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. I mean, think about a child. Does a child think poorly of themselves? Of course not. Does a child pretend that they're not good at something that they're good at? No way. Does a child like being a doormat? Not a chance. Not at all. So what is it then about a child that is the picture of humility that Jesus is talking about? Well, there's two things to give a child that kind of beautiful humility that Jesus is talking about. First of all, a child trusts deeply, deeply in somebody much greater than themselves, don't they? I mean, usually it's their parent, their mother, their father, but they have a deep, implicit trust in somebody much greater than they are. I mean, my kids, when they were little, you know, I say, oh, hi, sweetheart, how are you? And then I'd pick up that child and I'd throw in the air as high as I could. And that kid would go up, 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 up until they stopped going up. And then they'd start to plummet back down to the earth faster and faster. And you know what my kids did the whole time? They giggled and laughed and they loved it. Why? Because they totally trusted that I would catch them as they came down. My wife, on the other hand, who was watching this, she didn't have the same confidence in me. She wasn't having quite as much fun. But my kids, they, love, they, they trusted me completely. That's the kind of thing that children have. They have to have that kind of trust, don't they? I mean, they trust that someone will get the stuff off the top shelf, that someone will make their lunch for them, that someone will bring them to school, and that someone will show up to bring them home. They don't have it all figured out. And there's a humility in that. That's the kind of humility Jesus talked about. You don't have it all figured out. So you just be humble and you trust someone much greater than yourself. It's the first thing. The second thing that makes a child humble is that they know when they're in a good family, when they've experienced that kind of trust, they know that they are deeply, deeply loved. And you say, well, how, how is that a sign of humility? Well, here's the thing. The reason that they're deeply, deeply loved is simply because of who they are. Not because they're great at anything. Not because maybe they are great at things, but that's not why they're loved. They're loved simply because they're a son or a daughter. And see, that's the kind of humility that Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, look, you want to you have the humility of a child? That means that you need to put your trust in someone much greater than yourself. You need to put your trust in God. You need to trust him with your career. You need to trust him with your marriage, with your children, with your relationships, with your schooling. You, you need to humble yourself and say, I don't have it all figured out. I can't hope to have it all figured out. So I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to trust God. Secondly, you need to know deep in your heart how much you are loved, not because you're great at anything. God doesn't love you because you know the Bible well, because you signed up to go to China, because you led people to faith in Jesus like Billy Graham. God loves you because you're his son or because you're his daughter. And that is humbling. But here's the, here's the beauty of that. When you have that kind of humility, it allows you the freedom then to pursue greatness in all kinds of other areas in your life. You can pursue and step out and try greatness in this area, that area, and this thing and that thing without all that other pressure 
without all that other tension. When someone else is coming up and they're better than you, it's okay because you trust that God's in control. When you can't make it as far as you hoped you could make it to be great in this or that, it's okay because you know that you're deeply loved by your heavenly Father. See, what Jesus is calling us to here is not a heavy burden, it's actually a light burden. What he offers us here is grace, freedom, freedom to pursue greatness in our life without all the pressure, without all the negative side of it. Jesus says, if you want greatness, you need to humble yourself like a little child. But more than that, he he goes on to say there's another piece to that, and, and that's what he teaches us next. In verse 5, he goes on to say, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, you have to understand that that what Jesus is saying here is that humility isn't just a matter of a mindset. It's not just I, I trust someone greater than me and I am deeply loved. You see, true humility is always an action. It's always about doing something. In fact, let me give you a biblical definition of what humility is. Humility is a willingness to use power in the service of others for the glory of God. Let me explain that to you. True humility, the kind of humility that Jesus is talking about here, is a willingness. Okay? It's something that we choose to do. A willingness to use power. Now by power, what we're talking about there is the gifts and the talents and the skills and the abilities and the resources that God has given you. Whatever it is that God has given you, it's a willingness to use whatever God has given you in the service of others for the glory of God. So it's not about thinking poorly about yourself. Humility is about using what God has given you for others. So let's talk about this definition. This definition assumes several things. A person, first of all, assumes a certain level of dignity for the person who humbles themselves. You can't lower yourself unless you have some place to lower yourself from. So that's why what Jesus said is so important. A person who has a deep trust that God is in control of their life and that they're deeply loved, that's the kind of person who can willingly say, okay, I can lower myself because I know in the end I'm going to be okay. Secondly, it's always willing. You know, if, if someone else lowers you, that's humiliation. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's an invitation to lower yourself. And thirdly, it's using those skills, those abilities in the service of others. And in particular, in service of those who can do nothing to make you greater. I mean, that's why he says to them, whoever receives a little child like this, that's the picture. Why? Because you know what that child could do for those disciples? Nothing. Them serving that little child, caring for that little child, investing in that little child. You know what that gives them? That doesn't give them power. That doesn't give them prestige. That doesn't give them influence. That doesn't give them, you know, insight. There is nothing that they can gain from that little child that will help them be greater in the kingdom of heaven in their eyes. You know what would make them greater in the kingdom of heaven? If they received Jesus into their home. If Jesus would come to their house for supper. You know what the other disciples say? Whoa, Jesus came to your house? You had a personal, private conversation with Jesus? Clearly, clearly, you're being a good disciple. Clearly, you're the one that he favors. That's what they wanted. But Jesus says, no, no, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you know what you need to do? You need to receive those who can do nothing in return to make you great. So here's the question for you. Who or where in your life Is God giving you an an opportunity to serve those who can do nothing to make your world greater, to make it better, 
I mean, is it the coworker at work who, who desperately needs your help, but you know full well helping them will do nothing to advance your career at all? Is that who God is calling you to serve, to humble yourself? Is it the person in your world who's, who wants to get, they want to connect with you, but they're the kind of person that will do nothing to increase your prestige among your circle of friends. In fact, your circle of friends, if you hang out with that person, look and say, Wow, that's an interesting choice for that person to hang out with. And yet that person desperately needs someone who loves them and cares for them, not as a project, not as a charity case, but genuinely gives themselves to that person. Is that who you need to serve? Maybe the person you need to serve in your world expecting nothing in return is your husband or your wife. You need to humble yourself. You know, my wife, such a sweetheart, she loves watching uh, romantic comedies and we all know that's like the most terrible kind of movie you could ever watch right I mean every romantic comedy is exactly the same boy meets girl boy does something stupid girl doesn't like him anymore they're sad and then love overcomes all and they're happy again right I mean they'd be better to have an action movie which is much less predictable than that <laughs> right my wife loves those movies and so one of the ways to, to serve is to say okay Let's watch this. But here's the thing I know. My wife goes to bed really early. So, I mean, the example that I was thinking of the other day is that, you know, before Netflix, we went out and rented Eat, Pray, Love. I mean, like, it's the worst chick flick ever. But we brought it home before Netflix. We put it in, and literally 20 minutes in, my wife said, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. And that's it. Now I'm left watching Eat, Pray, Love all by myself. There's no gain in that for me, but I do it because I love her, because I want to serve. I use this valuable thing, my time, to give to her. Where is it that God is calling you to serve, expecting nothing in return? Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's a, a ministry area. I mean, right now we are looking for people to help in parking. To welcome people when they come here to the Bell Campus, to help them find a place. It's their first interaction that people have here. And you know, if you come and serve in parking with us, that won't help you become, you know, partner at the firm. That won't make you father of the year. But it is a way that you say, I'm going to humble myself and serve. And maybe it's village kids. Maybe you come help with our children and invest in them. The question is this, if you're going to humble yourself, if you're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven, where are you going to use the power, the resources, the skills that God has given you and get nothing in return? Now you might say, well, okay, Jesus, that's what you want, but what's the, I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't really help me. Well, here's the deal. Those who fail to do this, those who instead just seek their own greatness in their own part of their world, who, who just give themselves always to that, even though they become greater in the eyes of the world around them, the fact of the matter is they become smaller and smaller in their own world. Their, their soul shrinks. It was uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great 17th century uh, theologian who points this out. He said, look, look at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They had everything. I mean, they, had, uh, uh, they, they lacked nothing. And the serpent came along. And you know what the serpent said? You want to be greater? You want to have more power, more prestige? You want to be like God? You just have to eat the fruit. And that's what they did. And what was the result? Did they become greater? No, they became less. Did their world get bigger? No, it actually became smaller. Did it become better? No, it actually became worse. You see, the message is this. When we try to be greater on our own, the result is that we actually 
end up becoming smaller. The early church had such an interesting picture for this. A person who tried so hard to be great on their own, they said that person, the expression was they curved in on themselves. And we've all seen this, haven't we? I mean, people who think that they're so great, this and that and this, but they've actually curved in on themselves. My wife just came back from a, a trip to Winnipeg. Three hours on the airplane, she sat between a husband on this side and a wife on that side. And the reason she sat in between them is because the wife had, uh, needed an aisle seat and the husband wanted the window seat. And so my wife sat in the middle. For three hours, she said, the husband talked only about himself, his world, how great he was. And, and or it was an hour and a half, actually. And for that hour and a half, as he spoke about how great he was, he became smaller and smaller and smaller in my wife's eyes. And when he was done, then his wife picked up. And for another hour and a half, she did the same, smaller and smaller, because it was all about her and her world. Not once did she say something endearing about her husband. Not once did he say anything kind about his wife. And it was only when the plane touched down that one of them turned and said, you know, we haven't really asked you anything about yourself. And even then, they weren't that interested. And what happened is as they thought they were becoming greater, they were actually becoming smaller. But you know, when we give our lives to humility, to serving others, the opposite happens. Instead of curving in on ourselves, we flourish. Our heart grows bigger. Our world expands. And what we end up in is having a rich and a beautiful life. And here's the beauty of it. When we, when we seek greatness the way that God calls us to, it actually allows us to pursue greatness in all kinds of other areas. doesn't mean that we can't pursue greatness in, in all kinds of things. Now, Jim Collins wrote a famous book called Good to Great. It was a study of major multinational corporations that were consistently, year after year after year, outperforming their competitors. And he wanted to know, what, what is it about these companies that make them not just good, that make them great? And there were a number of factors, but one of the key factors was those who were leading those companies. Without question, he, he said every one of the leaders of those large companies was what he called a level five leader. And when he defined it, basically the definition of those leaders was that they were humble. They used their powers and their skills and their gifts and their abilities and whatever it was that they had to, to serve the people around them, to make them better, to help them with no expectation that that, that would make them more prestigious. And yet the result of living that way was that they were the successful leaders of these very large corporations. You see, Jesus isn't opposed to us pursuing greatness in our life. He wants us to pursue greatness in our life. But the way to do it successfully is always to start with the humility of a little child. So, now Jesus has one more thing to say to us about this greatness. Look at what he says in verse 6. But, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Whoa. Whoa, Jesus. Ah, suddenly we kind of took a turn here. Now what is Jesus saying here? Well, here's what he's saying. See where he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin? In your Bible, there's a little footnote there. It says, sometimes translated, stumble. The Greek word that Jesus uses there is actually the word for set a trap, to ensnare somebody. And so this is what Jesus is saying. You know those powers, those skills, those abilities that God has given you to serve others, expecting nothing in return? If instead you use those same skills, powers, skills, and abilities to set a trap, 
to ensnare, to harm those who are weaker, who can't do anything about it, who can't, can't fight back. If, if that's what you do, that makes God so angry. So the Christian boyfriend who sets out to seduce his girlfriend, to get her sleeping with him, knowing full well that that doesn't honor God, that that's not what God calls him to. The businessman who, who, who has a large business, who sets out intentionally to take advantage of his smaller suppliers, knowing full well that they won't be able to do anything. They'll just have to wait for him to pay if he even chooses to pay. The woman who sets out to destroy the reputation of another woman, knowing that that other woman could do nothing to fight back, that she could totally destroy her. God says it would be better for those people to have a, a big heavy millstone tied around their neck and to be dropped in the middle of the Georgia Strait than to face the kind of judgment that they'll have to face for using what God has given them to harm others. You see, God has always had a deep love, a deep passion, a deep concern for the weak and the vulnerable and those who in need and those who are struggling. And that's why he calls us to follow after Jesus, to humble ourselves, to become like little children and to, and to use what he has given us to serve those around us. But he says, look, if you're going to do that, if you're going to be successful at that, you've got to go all in. You've got to change your worldview. You can't just have the Jesus app in the corner. You've got to say, no, I'm going to see this world. I'm going to seek greatness in his kingdom. And you've got to trust God. You've got to know, God, I I'm going to trust you with this. And you've got to know how deeply you're loved by him. And then you've got to step out and say, God, okay, where? Where is it that you want me to serve you by serving others for your glory? And you know, when you do that, when you pursue that kind of, that humility in your life, then you're going to experience true greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Would you uh, just allow me to pray for you before we end today? And uh, would you bow your heads? Let's pray. God, we thank you for we thank you for the wisdom of Jesus again. God, we always think that we know it best in our way, and yet, God, Jesus always knows better. He knows how to live this life and how to make the most of it. How to see true greatness, experience true greatness. And so, God, I pray today for each person here, Lord, that you would teach us to seek that kind of greatness. Greatness through humility. Greatness through putting uh, others first and trusting you and knowing how much we're loved. And God, that when we do that, our heart opens up. Our world gets rich and beautiful and, and gets large. And God, you know what areas in our life it is that we need to seek that, that kind of humility. Father, whether it's with our, with our spouse or our family member or someone that we know or whether it's just signing up to serve someplace. God, I pray right now that you would speak to our hearts. Help us to know what it is that you want us to do so that we might know this kind of beautiful greatness in our life. So God, we give our lives and our hearts to you again today. And we thank you for, for Jesus, for what he has done for us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day.